Those videos are awesome, huh? Those are fantastic. What's up, guys? How are you? You guys good? Well, awesome. I'm so stoked to, to be here with you guys this week. My name is Matt. Uh, I am from California, IA, so I flew all the way out here to hang out with you, uh, and I absolutely love camp. I grew up going to camp. I gave my life to Jesus at camp uh, for about three and a half years. I actually worked as a camp director here at Hume, so I got to do uh, what Maddie and her team does, and I'm just so excited to be able to hang out with each and every one of you this week. Uh, a, a guy who I brought with me that is Eli, so you guys can all look at Eli and say, hi, Eli. Hi, Eli. Eli said he would beat all of you in paintball, so if you're playing paintball, Eli said he's going to come get you, uh, and he also wants to do the ropes course with you, me as well, we'd love to hang out with you guys. Uh, also, there was a group of ladies who I met last night who wanted me to shout them out, where's the Northway ladies at? Okay, awesome, awesome, I love it. Well, man, I'm just so excited to be able to walk through this theme with you, this theme of Marooned. Uh, and one group of people who wasn't able to be with me this week to help me walk through this theme is my family. I believe I have a picture of them right there. So that is my wife, Grace, uh, and our two little daughters, Selah, who's four, uh, and Sunday, who is three. They are absolutely amazing and insane, uh, but I absolutely love them. Uh, and one of my greatest joys, one of my greatest joys is being a dad as I get to watch my two girls grow up. But if I'm honest with you, being a dad is probably, at this day and age, one of the scariest things for me. Because these two girls, though four and three, are going to grow up in a world and in a culture very much like we just saw in the video. And as we're going to walk through this culture of Babylon, that these two girls, you and I alike, are living at a day in our age where everything in the culture and our world is dramatically against our human flourishing. It's dramatically against our good. It's dramatically against who God is in his way of life. And so as we walk through this week, we're walking through what does that actually look like to in the midst of a culture, in the midst of a world that treats followers of Jesus with hostility and disdain, how do you and how do I and how do we walk with Jesus humbly and rightly with resilience and kindness all at the same time? And that's what we get to see in the life of Daniel. See, Daniel is not just a mere example of what it looks like to walk this way. But in fact, as we walk with Daniel, we get equipped with practical tools and what it looks like for you and for me when we go home to be able to walk with God. So are you guys with me this week? Are you with me? Awesome, awesome. Well, as we dive in, uh, I just want to have you guys open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. And I'm going to read uh, our verse this morning, which is Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, and then after I read it, I'm going to pray. Also, where was, the, where was the young gal who spelled Nebuchadnezzar correctly? Where are you? Dude, I literally, like, I was blown away last night. Here I've been, like, pouring over this text for, like, three weeks. And I was struggling in the back, like, making stuff up. But you're a baller. Well done. That's awesome. So here we go. Chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to pray. It says this, 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Friends, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you're good. You're awesome. Father, I'm just so thankful for this crew of students. God, who you have put in these seats on purpose and for a purpose. God, you knew this week because it was on your calendar since the beginning of time for us to walk through what it means to walk with you in a culture that's so hostile. God, but we can eternally hope in you for you are with us every step of the way. God, and you're worth it. Jesus, I would just pray as I have an opportunity to speak through your word this morning. God, would you fill me up with your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, would you open our eyes and open our ears, but most importantly, open our hearts to the truth of your word. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Boom, I love the clap. Mm, let's get to start it. All right, so as we dive in, before we, we even begin to kind of see the life of Daniel, uh, there's an important thing we need to do first. So just like any story, how many of you are like Star Wars fans? Dude, my fellow nerds, let's go. Uh, in the process, a Star Wars movie starts, and what happens before it begins? You get this like long line of like words that goes up the screen. Why do they do that? Because it sets the stage for the narrative you're about to see. So you get to read through those words, and hopefully you read fast enough. I'd like pause, uh, but hopefully you can read it because then it sets the stage. And so this morning, that's essentially what we're going to be doing. Before we dive into Daniel, we need to set the stage to help us fully understand what is actually happening in our story. And in this process, as we look through the context of this historical telling of the life of Daniel, we need to answer a couple questions. We need to figure out who Judah is, where Daniel is from. We need to figure out who Nebuchadnezzar is and the tribe, uh, this country of Babylon. And we need to figure out why the heck did Babylon invade Judah in the first place. I think one of the most important questions in light of all those questions is, where is God in the midst of all of this? And as we look through those questions, it's going to give us a greater understanding as we start off our week together, and hopefully you'll begin to see that this culture of Babylon and this book of Daniel speaks beautifully and, may I say, incredibly truthfully as a reflection of our culture today. So let's dive into answering those questions. Let's see in verse 1, it says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So pause there for a second. We see in verse 1 of chapter 1, we are introduced to this kingdom of Judah in the third year of the reign of this king. We start our time with a timestamp of when this actually happened, which is around 605 B.C. or before Christ. So a long time ago, but again, that timestamp is there to help us understand that the story of Daniel is not a fantastical story. 
It's not fiction. It's not make-believe that this is indeed an etched historical account of the life of a man who actually lived in kingdoms that actually existed, and we get to learn from them this week. And after this time stamp, we are introduced to a couple of kingdoms. We see the kingdom of Judah, and we see a king of Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon. Now, friends, these two kingdoms could not be any more different than one another in every single way possible. So the first question we answer is, who is Judah and why do they matter? Well, the kingdom of Judah is the southern half of a nation called Israel. How many have heard of Israel before? A lot of you. So God's promised land. And the tribe of Judah were God's chosen people. And we see God choose them all the way in Genesis 11 when he starts with a guy named Abraham. And we follow Abraham's life and they create this country of Israel, God's promised land, and this specific tribe or the southern half of Israel, the tribe of Judah. And this is where Daniel was from, or Darlene, as we see in the video. And we need to understand that the kingdom of Judah, every part of the kingdom of Judah, from beginning to end, sun up to sun down, was built on the foundation of one God, the one true God, Yahweh. They were God's chosen people. And at the center of Judah was a city called Jerusalem. How many have heard of Jerusalem? Had a chance to go there. It's pretty awesome. It exists. It's a real place. And in Jerusalem, there is a big temple that was dedicated to the worship of this one true God. And that temple had been there starting since 957 BC. So by the time we enter in here, this culture has been worshiping at this temple for over 300 years. And the people of Judah, their entire culture, even their own calendar, was built on this reverence and awe of Yahweh. And one thing I love about the people of Judah is they loved to party. I don't know if you like to party, I like to party, but they had in their culture like seven cultural festivals where they found a reason to like dine and eat good food, which, dude, these sounds like my people, right? And the reason why they would have these seven feasts was to honor God or remember things that God had done in their life. Feasts that would commemorate the creation of the world. Feasts that would help them remember that when God led them through the desert as he freed them from Egypt. Feasts and celebrations to remind them as they entered into the promised land. Even their own calendar were marked dates that they might not forget who God is. Not only did they mark their calendar, but more importantly, their lives and their hearts were marked by what it meant to follow God. We get in our text, how many of you have heard of the Ten Commandments, right? Believe it or not, there was not just ten, but 613 commandments. It's pretty intense. But why did those commandments even exist? And we actually see Darlene in the movie reading from a book at the beginning, and that is Darlene reading through the commands and the statutes and the Word of God. So why would God give these people 
commandments. Commandments like you shall not have any gods before me or you should not steal. You should not eat meat sacrificed to idols. You should not make any worship. You should not worship any idols or graven images. Why did these commands exist? Well, similarly, uh, about eight years ago, I had an opportunity to marry my incredible wife who you just saw. And part of our wedding ritual, our wedding ceremony, is my wife and I shared vows. Now, why the heck do we take a section of a marriage ceremony and promise things to each other? We're making promises that are saying, I'm committed to living my life solely in pursuit of you, and I'm forsaking all others. The process of these commandments are similar to that of marriage vows. They're written and recited and followed, not out of a space of begrudging duty, but out of a space of, I want to love God, and these commitments are a way God and I can have a loving and mutual relationship with one another. See, the word of God and his statutes and his commands to the people of Judah were everything. It was their relationship vows with the God of the universe. And, and this, these commands would be memorized. So the boys at the, this time in Judah, they would go to school, just like you and I go to school, and they would memorize the first five books of their Bible. Like, you guys have memory verses. They're memorizing, like, Deuteronomy. That's crazy. That's a whole lot of bonus points. If you do that, you win wreck this week. Like, crazy. And they would memorize it so it would be tattooed on their hearts, so to speak. So as they get into moments of hostility or trial or they're unsure, they could always fall back on the word of God. The language of Judah is a language called Hebrew, and they still speak Hebrew today if you were to go to Israel. And they would give each other Hebrew names. So Daniel, the name Daniel, the Hebrew name means God is my judge. And so families, when they would have a child, they would wait eight days and then take them to the temple, and then that child would get a name. And normally that name was specifically tied to a characteristic of God. So Daniel, when he's eight years old, his parents take him to the temple, and these priests and his family name him Daniel, for he's set apart for God. So even the names of the people, everyone's name was to be a, a pronunciation or a, or a pronouncement of who God is. Are you getting this picture? Like everything in Judah was completely wrapped around and centered and built on the foundation of who God is. From every meal they ate to every name they were given to every word they spoke was commanded that it might be for the Lord in covenant relationship with him. This is Judah. Now what about this other kingdom? The kingdom of Babylon being led by a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, not only is it a tongue twister of a name, and no one should ever name their kid that in the history of forever now, but... Like literally in my notes, I, I abbreviate it to Neb because I just didn't want to pronounce it a thousand times, but I probably still will. But his name actually means, oh, Nabu, watch over me. Now, what the actual heck is a Nabu anyways? Nabu was one of the many gods of the Babylonians. See, they did not worship one god. They had over 300 gods. Like, dude, I can't even count that high. That's crazy. And this is what they 
worship. So even Nebuchadnezzar, his name was dedicated to a pagan idol that has no power whatsoever. Now, what about Babylon? What's the deal with them? Well, the origin of the name Babylon, this isn't the first time we see Babylon actually in the Bible. The first time we see it is when it was first created by human hands in Genesis chapter 11. How many have heard of the Tower of Babel? Okay, several of you. So the Tower of Babel, that story, if you remember, the people of the world get together and they're like, we want to do something great because that's what we want to do. We want to be the gods of our own lives, and we want to be equal with God and not fall under his authority or relationship with him. We want to be God ourselves. So we're going to do something that's so awesome that we'll just be able to stand in awe of ourselves. So these homies, like, build this giant tower to themselves. bit prideful, don't you think? And then God, seeing this, his heart breaks Because he watches as the people that he's created in his image trying to do life apart from him. Trying to do life as Lord of their own lives instead of letting his reign of love and joy rule over them. And so God, in his love and in his grace, instead of wiping people out, just goes like full gibberish on them and has each one and has given each one a different language. So imagine, you're like these people, and you're building this tower, you wake up, you're getting ready to go to work, and you're like, what's up, Billy, let's do this thing, and he just like responds to you in like a weird language, like, Billy lost his mind, and then all of a sudden you talk to other people, and everyone's speaking a different language, and it's just pandemonium, and what ends up happening, because all these people spoke different languages, they end up populating the earth as God told them to in the beginning, to be fruitful and multiply and multiply over the whole face of the earth, they end up going out and the tower no longer is continuing in its building process. You see, Babel and Babylon are located in the exact same spot in a place called Shinar. The very bedrock and foundation of Babylon culture was saying, I am God and I don't care about anything else. I'm going to do what I want to do. My desires are king, and I don't want to follow God in any way, shape, or form. From the very foundation of how Babylon was built. The language of Babylon was the language uh, of Akkadian. It was a form of Arabic, not, not Hebrew. As you can even see in the video, they have terrible broken English, right? It's a completely different language. And of these 300 gods that the Babylonians would have, they had one main god. And we see him depicted in the tide. And this god was the god of Marduk. And Marduk was to be worshipped, actually, rather than celebratory and in community with other people, human sacrifices were offered and violence and, and murder in the worship of this god. See, unlike the god of Judah who was full of love, creating men and women in his image to represent him in the world, the Babylonians worshipped a God out of full fear that they too might die. Love was not involved. And this pagan idol worship was stamped everywhere. Even in their own homes, they had many shrines to other family gods. As a matter of fact, you can go to this day... And they have the front city gates of the nation of Babylon. You can go see them. And actually, I have a picture of them right here. 
So those are the entry gates to the city of Babylon. Now look at what is on the wall, what is depicted. Horses. Now to you, they're horses, but to a Babylonian, that is the god Ishtar. That is another god they would worship. So just like we saw in the film, they're literally walking by these idols as they're being like trampled in as captives in this city. It's very likely Daniel himself might have walked through this very gate that towers over him. And give you another picture. This is about what it would look like at that time. Everything about Babylon was massive. And the whole reason why it was massive is that the gods of the people will tower over you in fear. See, this culture was completely bent against the God of Judah. I want to give an illustration to help paint this for you. So imagine, right, I'm from California, and imagine if I just didn't come here as like me, but I brought like Eli and like 30,000 to a million Californians, and I was like, we're getting in cars, and we're going to go take over the East Coast, right? So we like cruise out from Fresno, California, and we just come and absolutely destroy you guys, like, one, that's really mean. I would never do this, but this is an illustration. I'm actually a nice guy. So imagine me and my friends, we come, we utterly take over New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, right? We burn all your homes, because why not? And then we load you in buses, and we take you all the way back to California. And we're like, this is your home now. Not only, and you can't go back. Not only that, you're going to worship the gods of California, right? The Laker. The Giant, the Ram, the 49er, right? The Padres, go Padres. Uh, but this is who, hey, easy there. Uh, this is who you would worship. You would then be forced to eat all the foods of California, right? So you'd be like strictly on a oat milk diet, right? Like lactose-free, everything. You would just eat wheatgrass when you woke up right? You're like, I'm never going to California. It's better than this, but I'm just saying. Like, that is what would happen, right? We're, we're kind of taking over. And not only that, we would force you to get jobs working agriculture in the Central Valley of California. That's what you would do. And then we'd also change all of your names to represent uh, prominent figures or even other gods that we have. So we name you all after the Kardashian family. Right? See, now you're, getting, now you're getting the picture, right? Like, we would just utterly take over and change everything about you. And if you didn't, if you're like, you know what, Matt? Heck no. I'd be like, sweet. I'm throwing you in the waters of San Diego, and I'm going to watch you get eaten by great white sharks. It's going to be awesome. Right? I know it's a funny illustration, but I, I just want you to get this picture that Judah has lost everything. Their homes, many of their families wiped out, their culture trying to get taken from them, and they're walked across the land in bondage. And they walk through these gates into a foreign city they've never been, forced to learn a language they never knew, forced to bow their knee to gods that they don't believe in, their names changed to try to even switch their whole identities 
not as people who honor God, but as people who are serving the ways of the Babylonian culture and the world. And if I kind of step back for a second, I realize that our culture today is not that far different than that of the Babylonians. We live in a culture today that wants nothing to do with God. We live in a culture today that is radically against God. It's a full representation of Babylon on earth. And we see this in phrases like, live your truth. How many times have you heard that one? Right? I would rather live for myself than be founded in the absolute truth of who God is. That I'm going to live for me and my own desires are what matters, not for others and not for God. That I will take anything and everything I want. I am king of my life. Meaning and purpose and worship are found in the gods of our culture today. Worshiping money, worshiping influence. I mean, we see that in social media culture all the time. We spend our lives chasing after a blue check mark that will eventually fade away. We spend our time worshiping a potential career we might have, worshiping relationships, idolizing relationships. Worshiping what I can identify myself as, that I get to identify, that I don't have to submit to the loving lordship of God in anything and everything except for the Lord. Friends, this is the world you and I live in. So as much as the Babylonian culture in that day and age seems so crazy, you and I are living it right now. As a matter of fact, Babylon isn't just mentioned as a physical place in your Bible. Actually, in the very end, in the book of Revelation, the last book of your Bible, the writer references Babylon, but not as a physical place, but as the world in and of itself and the culture in and of itself that is radically against this loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God. Friends, look at me. You and me live in a Babylon in this day and age. But this then leads us to another question. Where is God in all of this? Where is he? And I think God doesn't want us to get too far into Daniel without to, to ensure we don't get it twisted and think he is absent or he's not in control look at verse 2 it says this the lord gave jehoiakim king of judah into his hand the lord gave judah into the hands of nebuchadnezzar so i asked this question did nebuchadnezzar take it under his own power no what happened god gave it to him so who's in control of the entire situation? God. It wasn't because Nebuchadnezzar was so strong. It wasn't because the Babylonians were so great. It was because God himself said, here you go. I am in control of this entire thing. Outward circumstance would try to tell us something different if we were standing there at the time with Daniel. As we're being carted away into captivity, we would think, where is God? 
But God, in verse 2, doesn't want us to get it twisted. He is in the very fabric of this whole situation, and he holds all of it in the palm of his hand. Look at me. God is in full control. Right now, in your homes, in your schools, in your areas of influence, in your homes, it may look chaotic and crazy and hostile, and the circumstances are very real, but you want to know what's more real? The God of heaven and earth holding all of it in the palm of his hand. God has all the chaos under control. Even when circumstances would try to lie to us and say that he isn't, he holds it all together. Now, I imagine if you were like me and you're reading this text, you're like, okay, Matt, that's really cool. God's holding it all together. But like, why? Why did he have to hand them over? I don't get it. Like, the Babylonians didn't have to become an equation. If God holds it all together, why the heck would he allow this to happen? Great question. Well, there was a prophet. How many of you know what a prophet is? Okay, a prophet, oh, look at you guys. A prophet is someone who would speak on behalf of God to the people of Judah. So one of these prophets was a guy named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet at this time. And Jeremiah's entire job for the entirety of his life was to go to the people of Judah and say, hey, you're not following in this loving uh, covenant relationship that God has asked you to walk in. He asked you to worship him and him alone, but you're actually worshiping other gods. So Jeremiah would point that out. Or Jeremiah would see, hey, you're actually stealing from your neighbor when the law of God says you shouldn't do that. Repent and return to God and receive his love and forgiveness. So Jeremiah for years, years, is coming alongside the people of Judah and what he begins to see in Judah is they're not following God. They're following after their own desires. They're worshiping other gods. They're praising idols. They're stealing from their neighbor. And Jeremiah's going, hey, 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 we need to stop and return to a covenant-loving relationship with God. So when Babylon meets Judah, they actually meet Judah in the midst of heavy rebellion that Judah is doing against God. Judah isn't following the Lord faithfully, and Jeremiah is pointing this out. I want you to listen. In Jeremiah 25, verse 4, it says this. Listen, these are the words of Jeremiah to the people of Judah. He says this to them, and the Lord has sent to you all his servants and the prophets again and again. So Jeremiah is saying, God has sent so many people to tell you that you're not walking with God. And what was their response? What was the peoples of Judah's response to this? But you have not listened or inclined your ear, saying, turn now everyone from his evil ways and his evil deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after the other gods and serve them or worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm. And what was the response of Judah? Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord. In order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to do your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of God, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. 
and will bring them this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations and round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Friends, the people of Judah have completely rejected the way of God. When we see them being taken by Babylon, essentially what God is doing is looking at the nation of Babylon going, oh, you want to worship other gods, okay. Oh, you want to be a slave to your own desires, okay, I, I get you. In that case, I'm actually going to give you exactly what you want. You want to worship other gods? I'm going to give you to a nation that does. You want to be a slave to your own sin and your desires? I'm going to give you to a nation that is enslaved to their own sin and their own desires. You want to be ruled by someone who isn't me? Okay. I'm going to allow you to be held captive by Nebuchadnezzar. So God gives them over to their own desires to fully experience what happens when we want to do our lives apart from God. That's why God does this, so that the nation of Judah can see that walking away from God leads to death and destruction. If God just simply let Judah do whatever they wanted, he wouldn't be God and he wouldn't be just, and that's not a God I'd want to serve. But God puts full on display what we read in Romans, for the wages of sin is death, and God will not be mocked. And we see that God lets them over to their own desires and gives them exactly what they want. But friends, this isn't the end of the story. That's not how this ordeal finishes. Jeremiah doesn't stop there. Says this in Jeremiah 25 verse 12. Listen to these words. Then it will be when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and the nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity in the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting destination. Desolation, boom, mic drop. God, in the end, is going to come and rescue, ransom, and redeem his people out of slavery back into freedom with him. God's plan isn't just to give it over and then leave. He's there the entire time with the plan at the end to always rescue his people back to himself. And in the same way, in the same way, the Lord will rescue you and will rescue me in the exile that we find ourselves in. Friends, the culture in the world doesn't get the last say. God does. But today, we find ourselves in exile in a culture that is completely and utterly against the flourishing of you and me as we follow God. But friends, look at me. This world is not our eternal dwelling place. You and I, on this side, are not home. We are exiles. Our home is somewhere else. 1 Peter 1-5 through, 1 through says this, listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this, verse four. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, 
undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in its time. Friends, your and my home is in the kingdom of heaven. Your and my home is when heaven and earth remarry and peace rules on earth and there's nothing but joy and, and tears are gone, pain ceases. Look at me, your home is not in the temporal, the fading. Your home is in the eternal and the imperishable that can never be taken away. But on this side, we're exiles with the hope that we will return home and that home is to be with God in his presence that is true and everlasting, in the presence of perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect love, perfect harmony, eternally with Jesus in paradise. That is our home. That this world does not get the final say on your life and my life. Jesus does. I want to share with you uh, an acronym that has always helped me put this in perspective it helps me gauge whether or not I'm truly living fully alive for Jesus and not to this world. And that acronym is indeed the word ALIVE, A-L-I-V-E. And it stands for always living in view of eternity. My hope is as we walk through in a culture and a world that is so against God that we would truly walk fully alive in who He is. Always walking in view of this is not my home but eternity with God in perfect peace, perfect love, his kingdom, that is my home. And look at me, he wants you and I to be a representative in the midst of a culture that is so against him. He wants us to be representatives of this kingdom on earth. And we watch Daniel put that in full display. Being truly alive on earth is living in the fullness of joy and resilience with God even in the midst of trial. Our citizenship is an eternal one, not a temporal one. And we see this very thing in a guy named the Apostle Paul. Paul is an absolute stud. You want to talk about a guy who went through like hell and back again? Paul's your dude. Paul lived every way he possibly could for the world. He, he achieved it. He had it. Influence, you name it. He says, I consider it all nothing for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul would go on to write a third of your New Testament. And not only that, you talk about a homie who went through it, he was shipwrecked, not once, not twice, three times. Homie got to stop going on boats. I don't know about you, I'm not going sailing with this guy. He got bit by snakes. I hate snakes, right? He gets thrown off a mountain and like stoned to death with rocks. And yet he walks out of those situations and he's able to say these things in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is unto Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because my home isn't here. And pain and suffering will fade away. But joy and everlasting love is eternal. And even hell itself can't come against it. Friends, look at me. On this side of heaven and in this culture, you will experience trial. You will experience hardship, especially as a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself promises that. But, God is in full control. He has you and me in the palm of his hand. That nothing is coming against you, that God isn't holding in his midst. 
And God looks at you and says, fear not, for I have overcome the world. Your home isn't here. It will never fade away. Your home is with me in my presence, in perfect love and perfect goodness. And because of that truth, we can choose by the power of the Holy Spirit to stand resilient in the face of the worst of the worst, as Paul did, as Daniel did, looking at a culture and say, culture, do your worst to me, for I serve a God who is all the more powerful. Friends, as we walk through this week, as we dive into the life of our friend Daniel and his friends, we're gonna see his friends look at the culture of Babylon and say, do your worst, because we serve a God who holds all of it in his hand, and our home isn't here, our home's with God. And through his life and his friends' lives, you and I get to learn, for you and for me, what this can actually look like. Friends, look at me. It's possible to live for God in the culture of today. It is more than possible to live in light of eternity and in the power of Jesus today and forever. And this week, we get to unpack what that truly looks like. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you're good. You're awesome. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for your servant Daniel. I thank you for the book of Daniel that you wrote. God, you did not leave us in exile to figure it out. You put us here with a plan and on purpose. God, I pray for my friends here that as we dive into the life of your servant, God, may it not be a good story May it not be something that was for then and not for now. God, I pray that you would mark and tattoo our hearts with your truth. God, that we leave this place four days from now more in love with you than when we arrived. God, go before us. We love you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.